Welcome to Mayo Clinic Q&A. What's surprising is the high rate of that occurrence. In fact, looking at mild infections among healthcare workers still had their lives significantly disrupted by long haul symptoms. One in three people who had COVID-19 are now suffering from some type of long-term effect from the disease. What's the cause and is there progress to help these people? In the area of active research, we do not have a clear mechanism for why this should be, particularly with the brain. The majority of that has been either what people call brain fog or neuropsychiatric symptoms like depression, anxiety, those sorts of things. Welcome everyone to Mayo Clinic Q&A. I'm Dr. Helena Gazelka. We're recording this podcast on Monday, April the 12th, 2021. Well, here with us again today to discuss updates in COVID-19, including vaccines, treatment, and all the things that you want to know is Dr. Greg Poland, virologist, vaccine, and infectious disease expert at Mayo Clinic. Hello again, Greg. Good morning, Helena. How are you today? Oh, good to see you. And you. I hope you had a lovely weekend. I did. I actually took Saturday off. First oh my time goodness. in 15 months that I took an entire Saturday off. I bet your wife was thrilled. I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe she's ready for you to be back to work on Monday. Who knows? Well, Greg, give us the numbers. Where are we with getting Americans vaccinated? Well, you know, we're we're doing a a little better. Right now, we have about 32 million uh, cases that have occurred in the U.S. So one out of 10 Americans has been infected. Um, and about 575,000 deaths, so about one out of every 569. Right now in the U.S., there have been about 187 million doses uh, that have been administered and 238 million that have been delivered. So we're really doing well. In fact, over the weekend, I understand that we hit over 4 million doses on Saturday administered. So this is is a fantastic Well, someone wasn't taking the day off, Greg. No, that's right. (laughs) (laughs) Now I feel guilty. (laughs) Greg, tell me how the the variant, I've heard the British variant is very um, uh, problematic here in the U.S. or gaining Mm -hmm. speed. How is this affected by the vaccine? Do we know anything yet about that? Yeah, this is, you know, we, we, we in, in this show and in many's warned and warned against spring break travel, against uh, relaxing restrictions too soon. And we're now starting to see the brunt of that just mm-hmm. as expected. Um, Minnesota, uh, Michigan, um, and other states now are actually having the beginning of surges. Michigan is the state to look at if you wanna see what's gonna happen over the next few weeks. They've had a dramatic surge in cases. Um, And unfortunately, this is involving younger people, something we did not see in the past. And the reason for it is the B117 or so-called UK variant is definitely uh, more highly transmissible by about 50% and probably equally again as more lethal. And so unfortunately, uh, we're going to see the the loss of life among younger people who are just uh, apparently not getting the message that you cannot relax restrictions yet. You cannot go without getting the vaccine. 
These are really, really important. Michigan's healthcare system is uh, in particular uh, in some of the uh, Southern areas is overwhelmed. And uh, that, how can that be happening? You know, uh, not quite a year and a half into this. We, how many times do we have to do this? We just have to take this seriously. One of my questions, Greg, is because these are younger people, is it individuals who haven't even had the opportunity to be vaccinated yet, possibly? In a, in a lot of cases, that, that is the case. But, you know, when you look at it, um, most of the states, in fact, by the 19th, I think it is, the vaccine will be open to everybody, 16 for Pfizer, 18 for Moderna will be open to everybody. Okay. Um, but as it is, healthcare workers, essential workers, teachers, I mean, a whole long list of people, uh, regardless of their age as adults, have been eligible to get the vaccine. But we're seeing vaccine hesitancy, and particularly among uh, younger people, the misinformation that they're unlikely to get infected or unlikely to have symptoms. And that's just wrong. I want to get back to vaccine hesitancy in a minute, but I want to ask you one thing, Greg, before I forget. I think that we had mentioned before that uh, many states are lowering the age for vaccination to 16. Yes. What about teenagers? What about even the older children from 12 up, say, where are we with them being able to be vaccinated? Yeah, so virtually all of the manufacturers are doing studies in that age. Pfizer is the most advanced with that and actually has completed that study, showed 100% protection. So they are actually oh, coming forward. Yes, they're coming forward with an EUA request to the FDA for use of the Pfizer vaccine in kids 12 to 15 years old. It's already approved for 16 and above. Now, you were just talking about vaccine hesitancy, and I actually saw an interesting news article saying that far more women than men are being vaccinated. And then there were a number of reasons for this. Uh, the healthcare system and how many women work within the healthcare system, it's, and women maybe being more older women who would have been eligible first. Right. But uh, does this have anything to do with vaccine hesitancy? Are men hesitant to get vaccinated? Yeah, you know, it's a very interesting question. And as you mentioned, uh, women tend to have higher immunization rates with COVID vaccine because they predominate in the healthcare field, in the teaching fields, and a lot of the essential worker type fields. So okay. they've been able to get the vaccine, whereas less men. But even accounting for that, Helena, we do see evidence of that. Some of it, I think, is... Uh, you know, just the nature of our culture, women uh, tend to be the ones responsible for healthcare in the family. They're, they're the ones that tend to watch over that. They are the ones that are taking care of uh, the family. So, you know, as my wife often says, I don't get sick time. So, <laughs> so she's, been, she's been one to stay on top of that. But I think there are other issues. Um, when you look at um, uh, college graduation rates, for example, in our culture here in the US, women tend to be better educated. And when you're better educated, you're more likely to not fall prey to misinformation or disinformation. You're less likely to associate a vaccine with a political affiliation or even an economic conflict of interest because there's such a, a focus on well-being, on health and on caregiving. And I think that that's a, it's a hard factor to quantitate, but I think it's a real factor. 
That's really interesting, Greg. What you said about education is fascinating to me. And it reminded me of when I started medical school and found out that 55% of my medical school class at the University of Minnesota was women. And I thought how interesting that was in a yeah. field that we had traditionally yeah. thought of as a male dominated field. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I mean, I, I'd go to anybody who's good, but predominantly in our family, we all go to female physicians. <laughs> <laughs> um, AstraZeneca, Greg, we talked about this a couple of weeks ago, that it has not yet been approved, I don't think, for emergency use authorization in the United States. And why is that? There's still concerns about blood clots. Yeah, yeah. Well, number one, they have not come forward yet with an oh, okay. EUA request to, to, the, to the FDA. But <clears throat> I think until the issue about these unusual uh, low platelets called thrombocytopenia and then clotting, called thrombosis, until those are cleared up, I think it's going to be difficult uh, to, to approve a vaccine uh, like that in the U.S. The, the issue is separating what is real and potentially caused by the vaccine from what are, what are background rates. And it, it's a difficult situation because the value of the AstraZeneca vaccine is that it does work. It's effective. Um, it's also very inexpensive. So when you look worldwide, this is, a, this is a key vaccine to controlling this. And so you're in this position where you're, you're trying to look at background rates and you're basically asking the question, has this increased the risk over background of a blood clot by one in a million? That's a very hard thing to discern hmm. and to know whether it's true. Let's say that you thought it did. Would you not use the vaccine when the risk of getting COVID and getting a blood clot if you got COVID is so much higher? And so that, that's the dilemma of, you know, how do you balance these things out? Now, for the most part, the mRNA vaccines have not been uh, associated with an elevated rate of, of thrombosis. It's, it's just the adenovirus vectored vaccines. And again, whether that's a real association or not is unclear. I think the one place that it may be getting a little more clear is in an unusual kind of clot called a central venous uh, sinus thrombosis. This is a blood clot in a vein draining uh, uh, the brain. And there it appears, this could be modified by more data, but it appears that that risk is slightly increased and mostly in younger women and mostly in younger women taking oral contraceptives, which tends to increase the risk of that type of clotting anyway. So sure. we're again back in that situation of, is it actually higher than the background rate or not? Right. But a frightening sounding event. Sure. Uh, if course. you're considering getting a vaccine and otherwise feeling healthy now. So. Yeah. Yes. Interesting. Well, um, Greg, in spite of the cautions against travel and being safe travel, I know the CDC has begun to change some of their recommendations in that regard. So I assume that people maybe will be traveling more this summer. Mm -hmm. And I'm wondering, um, you know, many times people get COVID tests before they travel or when they return. We've had questions about if someone has the COVID vaccine, will they then test positive for the test perhaps? Yeah. So just to clarify that, there are 
there are diagnostic tests that tell us whether you're infected or not. And then there are antibody tests to tell us whether you were infected in the past. So the antigen and PCR tests do not turn positive just because you've had a vaccine. It's only if you have the presence of the virus. Now there can be false positives there. The antibody tests tell you whether you have been infected in the, in the recent or distant past such that you have antibody to one of the proteins in the virus. So, so a key distinction there. What CDC is saying in, in regards to traveling is that if you've been fully vaccinated, mm -hmm. that means 14 days or more after your second dose of an mRNA vaccine, or 14 or more days after the single dose of the Johnson & Johnson vaccine. They're then saying that domestically, you could travel. Now, okay. at the same time, they're saying, but we don't recommend travel. And the reason for that is because we have not yet gotten enough people vaccinated. And the more people travel, the greater the risk of the spread of these variants. And these variants could potentially change a lot. Let me give you some examples. Um, uh, in the Moderna study that uh, was just recently completed, they looked at uh, live virus neutralizing antibody capability six months after getting the second dose in people age um, 65. And that neutralizing ability was reduced tenfold after six months. So in other words, the ability to resist the viral um, infection. infection. Right. Now you take, instead of the standard virus, you take the UK variant or even worse, the South African variant. And you are going to see some breakthrough infections over time. And so the idea really is the ideal thing. I mean, if I were, if I had the capability, I would say, okay, Nobody, unless it's absolutely essential, move out of your community. Everybody's going to wear a mask. Everybody's going to socially distance. We're going to open up as much as we can, though, safely until we get as many people vaccinated as possible and get these variants under control. Otherwise, the reality we're going to have to live with is that this pandemic will just continue. We are now on the verge of our fourth surge. And this is going to continue until we get a handle on this. It just keeps going, doesn't it? Yeah. Well, thank goodness know, for vaccines. Even to the point where uh, most of us believe now that uh, we are almost certainly going to have to live with this virus every year. We, mm -hmm. We've failed to get a hold of this early on. And the consequence will be, it's, it'll be something like influenza I don't mean in terms of severity, but in right. terms of annual um, infections and surges. And interesting to see what happens with vaccinations. Will those be annual as well? Yeah. yeah. So Greg, this weekend, I ran a couple of errands. Um, when you were having your day off on Saturday, I was as well. And I had to go to a couple of stores and they were, um, you know, the, they all offer you hand sanitizer, which is wonderful. Can't have too much hand sanitizer. And they're all still, um, many stores were still wiping the counters and disinfecting and sterilizing them between 
um, customers. And I know that the CDC has uh, changed the recommendations a little bit about disinfecting surfaces or put out some recommendations. Oh. Um, what are those and what should we be, should we be doing? Yeah, what, what the CDC wisely did, and, and I think this is really important for our listeners to understand, wisdom resides in changing your mind and your recommendations as new data and science becomes available. And that's what's happening here. So the estimate is that touching a contaminated surface and then touching your eyes, nose, or mouth is is likely to result in perhaps perhaps an infection one out of every 10,000 times. Oh, wow. I mean, terribly low. Now, that's not a firm number, as you might imagine. That's a very difficult thing uh, to actually measure. So what the CDC is doing is modifying those guidelines. They're saying that the, the risk of touching a contaminated surface and then getting infected is very low. We know that for hands and for hard surfaces, soap and water is good enough. We don't need to be using more toxic agents like bleach wipes and things like that. And so their recommendation is if it has been um, uh, three days or more, just, just use soap and water. The only time to use a, a disinfectant like bleach would be if you had a confirmed COVID case in that environment, and then it would be worthwhile to do it. Now, what's interesting is it's uh, probably also contributed to a decrease in influenza cases along with mask wearing. Huh. So there definitely is value in uh, high touch surfaces, for example, uh, bathroom doorknobs, maybe the, the doorknob in and out of a, of a facility. Beyond that, I think that uh, it gets really low yield. For example, uh, people wiping their mail or uh, groceries. I just think that that has, uh, the science has now progressed to the point where we can say that's exceptionally low yield. The risk is by far of not wearing a mask properly or um, not having your hands clean and touching your your face. Those are those are the risks. Okay, that's that's good information to have. Um, Greg, there's been a lot of information about COVID long haulers, as they've been mm -hmm. called, people mm -hmm. who have, who have long-term sequelae of the infection. And a recent study showed that one in three individuals have some difficulty with uh, brain disease after COVID-19. I'm wondering, uh, what does that entail? And what do we know about the neurologic and physiologic effects of COVID-19 at this point? Yeah, you know, it, it, this is very interesting. In an area of active research, we do not have a clear mechanism for why this should be, particularly with the brain. And just to clarify, the majority of that has been either what people call brain fog or neuropsychiatric symptoms like depression, anxiety, those sorts of things. In addition, of course, there have been strokes and uh, uh, other, other conditions that affect that. What's surprising is the high rate of that occurrence. In fact, uh, in the yes. Journal of the American Medical Association over the weekend, there was a research letter uh, looking at mild infections among healthcare workers. And eight plus months later, uh, nine to 12% of them 
still had their lives significantly disrupted by long haul symptoms. Mm. So this is, this is something the NIH and the government is aware of. They're putting a lot of money into research to understand that. We've applied for one of those grants. We're waiting to hear this week, actually, whether we'll get that grant. Uh, but, but I think it does deserve a lot of research to understand not only what causes it, but what should we do therapeutically mm -hmm. to assist patients that have had those kinds of symptoms. I know we have a number of physicians and scientists here at Mayo Clinic who are very interested in this topic. And um, we've even had on the program before that they've developed a program within our rehab unit, wow. a physical medicine and rehabilitation unit for just for individuals who suffered from COVID-19. I, I think many of the patients that they have were hospitalized yeah. um, and then went to the rehab unit, but it was fascinating. They were kind of early on recognizing this yeah. and it's now and I, become quite a big area of focus. Yeah, and I, and I think as you're pointing to Helena, we do see a gradient. In other words, the risk being greater with more severe uh, disease manifestations. But this is something important, especially for the younger people. Even mild disease, when you're talking about 10, 12, 15% of people saying, my life is moderately to severely disrupted by the long-term symptoms of mild disease in young people. That's yes. significant mm -hmm. and needs to be paid attention to. Greg, I saw another article that I wanted to ask you about, and that was um, prevention of COVID-19 using monoclonal antibodies. And I'm wondering, why would we do that when we're vaccinating people to prevent COVID-19? What are the advantages? Yeah, you know, uh, so we've done a lot of work uh, in thinking about monoclonal antibodies and what is the appropriate use for them. And I think there's really uh, several uses. One would be in the immunocompromised patient where they're unlikely to respond well to the vaccine. So we can protect them for about three months with an infusion of monoclonal antibodies. The second would be in people where they cannot get the vaccine. Maybe they've had an anaphylactic reaction, for example, uh, or they're allergic to a component of the vaccine. And then the third would be in trying to prevent, so people who have not yet gotten the vaccine, trying to prevent them from moving into moderate to severe disease and prevent okay. hospitalization. And here's the interesting last one that you're, you're pointing to. Studies now showing that, and these were done in uh, nursing home environments, that we could infuse monoclonal antibodies and protect people from getting infected in the first place. So the first three uses were therapeutic. The last one, prophylactic. Um, what's interesting is that we have had to move from using a single monoclonal to a so-called cocktail, two or more monoclonal antibodies, again, because of these variants that are arising. Interesting. That's a fascinating area of research oh, yeah. as well. And amazing, like we've said before, how quickly this has progressed yeah, and indeed. that the that the research has developed and the knowledge has developed. It's really amazing. Yeah, it's, it's real time. <laughs> it's been a horrible, horrible um, plague or pandemic, but what an amazing time to be alive when wow. accomplishments like this are occurring wow. at the same time. Yeah, never never before really in, in modern medicine have we seen anything like this? Have we seen the galvanization 
of science. And it just shows that with focus and funding, uh, scientists and physicians can do a tremendous amount of good very quickly. The hard part is bringing along the public to understand those data. And, you know, to some degree that argues for why we need rigorous scientific education uh, from the youngest grades onward. Otherwise people just sort of are paralyzed by fear mm -hmm. rather than understanding. Yeah, that the internet is a is a two-edged sword, isn't it? <laughs> full of good good information and full of bad information at Indeed. times. Yes. Well, Greg, do you have any last words of wisdom for us today? I think um, what I'm what I'm uh, very animated about and happy about is that we have exceeded any expectation about efficacy and safety of the vaccines particularly as we look at the mRNA vaccines, where we have only one safety signal, which is anaphylaxis. The other part about that has been the ability to move these vaccines out into the population to the rate of now 4 million doses a day. The one piece here that is making this a, a desperate race, and I say that not to be dramatic, but to instill reality. We are in a desperate race between these variants and the ability to immunize people. Mm -hmm. And how that's gonna play out is really up to each one of us. And whether we do the right things that are science-based or whether we each decide for ourselves, no, I don't care about what the data show and I'm just gonna do X, Y, or Z. And that has, as we said, cost uh, well over half a million American lives. I think it's just wonderful to be sharing some good news, though, about the efficacy yeah, of vaccines absolutely. and how quickly we're getting them out. So thank you for that, Craig. Yeah. Thanks for being here again today. My pleasure. Our thanks to infectious disease specialist Dr. Greg Poland from the Mayo Clinic for being with us here today to give us our COVID-19 updates. I hope that you've learned something. I know that I have. And we wish each of you a very wonderful day. Mayo Clinic Q&A is a production of the Mayo Clinic News Network and is available wherever you get and subscribe to your favorite podcasts. To see a list of all Mayo Clinic podcasts, visit newsnetwork.mayoclinic.org, then click on podcasts. Thanks for listening and be well. We hope you'll offer a review of this and other episodes when the option is available. Comments and questions can also be sent to Mayo Clinic News Network at mayo.edu.